Welcome back to SideQuest, episode 29, Final Fantasy VII, episode 17. And with a heavy, heavy heart, I welcome you, my esteemed colleague, Mr. Wesley Chance, to this very, very sad denouement of Disc 1 and Final Fantasy VII. Welcome back, Mr. Wesley Ooh, Thanks. Uh, I would say I'm happy to be here, but I know that it is a sad moment as we bid adieu to Eris. It's been with us since the very start of the game. She's like the first thing you see when you start the game, right? And and uh, oh, I noticed something this time actually. When you when you have to take the disc out uh, and you put the first disc back in your little box, if you're tidy like that, you'll see her. You'll see her image in there too. It's like it's like she's waving goodbye to you. The picture um, in the in the little case underneath where the first disc goes is a is of Eris um, and the uh, high wind in the background. Now, see, oh, I, I, always, I always like that because what I always thought about when I looked at that later in the game, and I sort of have tingles remembering that, is it's sort of her with her, her back to the player, but watching the high wind, right? And she, uh, she never sees the high wind with you, right? She never sees you guys in the high wind. And so it sort of like represents to me in sort of a Beatrice Dante way, like uh, an ideal that you must say goodbye to in order to reach new heights. Just to oh, jump yeah. immediately into the metaphorical. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it is such, a, such an iconic, there's so many iconic images that cluster around Eris. Um, that's, that's a beautiful one. It, it makes me think of our side quests with Hayao Miyazaki that we um, started yes. this project with. Uh, you know, I, I find that of the of the heiress images, um, her face there beside the Mako um, spilling out in the alleyway um, is is probably the one that is the most I don't know evocative. Oh, we talked about that um, earlier in this in this series, but I know for a lot of people the death scene is like the key moment of their video gaming lives, um, they're playing of this game and maybe of, of all the games that they play, right? And uh, who, the impact that it has on um, people's psyche is re really, really interesting. Um, for me, it was always, you know, uh, surprising, shocking, yeah, sure, but, um, but I, I still feel like her life and her, um, what she represents is um, is a lot more than that to 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 kind of read the game uh, more holistically. I, I feel at least, but the well, death, especially is if you're taking the frame of Cloud very seriously right now, Sephiroth has always been that sort of big brother figure, that ideal figure that you can't live up to, who you're finally taking a crack at, and so now he pulls the ultimate big brother move, which is to take something away from you which is extremely important to you and even even in the moment of its death has sort of genuine uh general importance too making it all the more tragic that she who in the beginning was a simple metaphor for you know natural beauty existing alongside sort of artificial sort of like garbage right like sort of uh, she was herself a garden within the trash heap of Midgard, showing that something beautiful or pure could exist. And then Sephiroth says, nope, that taking that from you too. You don't have, and so like now, I mean, if you, if you just stack up with Cloud, Sephiroth has taken 
his uh, has taken his his family from him, his hometown. His uh, uh, he is the hero that Cloud could never become, and now has taken sort of his girlfriend from him too, uh, who he was starting to idealize a future from, um, and just also shown Cloud how powerless he is, not only to control him his own self, but to control the fates of those around him. He he's he's like the opposite of a responsible, successful man, right? Like a Mufasa character. He's like a young Simba. Everything that's happening around him, he cannot control. He can't even control himself. He can't get it together. And actually, I did want to talk about that a little. The, the, the fact that he sort of, he loses control again and almost kills Ares while you sort of have weird control of him. And then Sephiroth comes down and strikes her down and uh, I was sort of trying to read that metaphorically as if, you know, Cloud, you know, Sephiroth does this through the actions of Cloud, but it does also seem significant that he did hold up at the last moment, though. Uh, Red 13 and Barrett, who are on my team right now, are really looking at him with some serious suspicion. Uh, in fact, Barrett, slightly earlier, when Cloud was like, will you guys follow me? He was like, I don't know, man. Um, which was a pretty lukewarm answer. Um, but yeah, I wanted to sort of unpack that scene, that, that monumental th scene where we get, you know, one of the rare and incredible CGIs and, you know, one of the best. Yeah, it, so it's it struck me this time. Yeah, I didn't remember much about that part where you are the, um, in control of Cloud, but all that you can do is lift the sword right you can move the controller around and it, he'll sort of uh, resist and struggle but he, he's rooted to the spot you know the sword appears in his hand he raises it over his head and and then the only thing you can do you know if you want to proceed with the game you've got to push the button that would be the the the, the strike um and then the two party members whoever they are will, will cry out in that moment and he'll sort of snap out of it um and I, I have to imagine that that is actually Sephiroth releasing him because I don't see that their intervention would be enough, you know? Right. So like getting into the, the actual fine points of it, you can read it a few different ways, right? You can say, okay, Cloud overcomes Sephiroth's control in that key moment. Um, that's one way to read it. You could read it like an Abraham Isaac thing where in the final moment, an angel, so to speak, stays his hand. You know, something bigger than him that, that intervenes in the final moment. And maybe that's, you know, Eris and her holy sort of aura um, and the life stream and, and this and that, right? Like maybe you could look at it that way. They intervene there. That, that, that force um, comes in in that moment. And maybe that's even like a more interesting way to think about it. And Sephiroth only thinks that he's released cloud you know but he's actually caught in a a bigger destiny than even Sephiroth understands that's you know a, a, a possibility but the the simplest the Occam's razor thing here I think would lead you to to conclude that yes yeah, Sephiroth is sadistically released cloud in the moment when he realizes that he could have forced him to kill Eris but Sephiroth would rather do it himself you know right in front of cloud and have cloud be powerless to stop him and know that he was just about to be forced to do it himself and in some way you know, he has failed. Like you're saying, he's, he's failed to live up to the, the role that he had set for himself. 
that he had uh, identified with and, and believed um, was his, his calling, right, of, of this kind of great hero, uh, that Sephiroth himself has completely betrayed <laughs> the ideal that Cloud had of him, and that now this new ideal of Eris, right, yeah, is taken away, is, is impaled uh, from behind uh, with the sword of his previous ideal, and, and she falls. And in that moment, the, uh, the holy materia is released from her ribbon, right, and it bounces, uh, it defies gravity and physics and bounces in the pattern that Cloud had jumped to reach that pedestal in the middle of the water. It falls in the water as Cloud will later uh, release Eris into the water. So there, there's just a lot of interesting uh, echoes and things going on there. Um, what, what else did you notice or what do you think about that scene? Well, and so that then something, literally something holy is lost in that moment because the, the materia holy is lost. And just, I want to focus on something Sephiroth starts to say and Genova then says, which is uh, you are just a puppet. Um, because Cloud, uh, that, that sort of has, that has implications for how we read him throughout the entirety of the first disc, because he did actually give the black materia to, to Sephiroth. He did actually require, recruit sort of Ares to come with them in the first place. And because of him giving the black materia to Sephiroth, Ares then came to this temple and then he followed her which enabled Sephiroth to follow her, uh, though we're not exactly sure how that works, but it seems to be sort of like a Voldemort inside Harry's head, sort of occlumency uh, trick, right? That like what Cloud knows, Sephiroth somehow knows. And so uh, not only did, did Cloud give Sephiroth the material necessary in order to destroy the world, in so doing, he drew Ares to this vulnerable spot, which then allowed Sephiroth without her knowing and sort of a, et tu brute Caesar, stab her in the back way, uh, then kill her and then move forward without any future, any other ancients to destroy her. Like Cloud has made all of this possible. Um, and so, and with other clones of Sephiroth or whatever they are, these numbered things um, like Red 13 and with which share some psychic relationship with Sephiroth wanting reunion. And you seem to have some psychic relationship with Sephiroth sort of relate, uh, reminds me also of that sort of trend of video game, like the metal gears where there's always, you know, something underlined and also some psychological sort of, you know, interesting thing or silent Hills to PlayStation seem to come out with a lot of interesting psychological ideas at this time uh, in its video games, which were interesting to us. But um, you, you seem also to be, um, you do seem, if you read yourself in this way, and this is the interesting thing about playing a video game, right? Do you have any choices or do you have to follow the same narrative as everybody? And is that way, some way, like what every human's life is, like Shakespeare says about, you know, you know, we're on this ship of merry fools or whatever. And, and, and in each his good time, we play many roles. I'm paraphrasing, of course. But that has, has Cloud been, totally determined, totally drawn along on a string the entire time. And is that what any hero is, or is that the opposite of a hero? And, and is it true? Because it has major implications for how we feel right now, because not only do we feel awful because Ares was killed, but now we might also have the additional guilt of it's all our fault. Um, and 
the world is actually going to now be destroyed because of our foolish quest to try and get Sephiroth. If we had just done nothing, everything would be better than how it is now. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's that's like the nihilistic, uh, the most, oh, man, yeah. So the puppet thing makes me think of um, Kate Sith. Yeah. Right? Who, who's like a very undesirable character in many re regards, but one of them is that he's controlled from afar by a Shinra employee, right, it turns out. And, and so his body is just a puppet. Um, so you, you're, you're like Kate Sith, right, <laughs> is, what, is what Sephiroth says. And then the other thing it made me think of, too, when you're talking about playing many roles, um, the world is but a stage, you know, that, that's that, that scene in the Gold Saucer date where you go down to um, play the role of the, of the hero and whoever you're on the date with plays the role of the princess. And, you know, that, there's a visual kind of echo of that when you're descending that crystal stair um, to, the, to the the castle palace thing at the bottom of um, the for, the forgotten city, it's it looks a lot like the the stage that's there in that part of Gold Saucer. Um, and so yeah, you, and and the scene, um, you know, centers on a kind of stage, this this platform where Eris is under a uh, a beacon, a, a light um, shining down on her. It's sort of like almost shining through water is kind of how it looks, right? So it has a very unreal quality, a very um, staged quality to it. Uh, and so if you are a puppet and the, that, you know, is you um, following your role in some respects, um, it, it becomes a question whether there is anything outside of that. Yeah, whether that is the, the ultimate reality um, of the situation or whether it's one which is being played out for some purpose, right? Like for our, the entertainment of someone playing a video game, say, <laughs> uh, or, or for some more elaborate purpose um, of the story of the drama uh, unfolding there between Sephiroth and the ancients, right? Um, the, the, ro the, the role of those characters and whether they are in control or whether they are being um, guided, um, marionetted, you know, uh, like like Cloud seems to be, is is a really I think a real interesting one to to be lit, led to ask here. Um, and I think you know Eris's passivity in all this is especially strange and should should kind of lead you to ask some questions. I think about. Like, what does she know in that moment um, as she seems to be praying and communing with these, um, these spirits, the life stream, the life of the planet? You know, yeah. how, much, how much does she, how much does she kind of clue into levels of reality that are a bit deeper, right, um, than what you're, you have access to at this point? Yeah, and that just makes me think two things. One, I want to make the connection between Sephiroth and, say, a superior being or superior culture and its ability to cut through your sort of personal or cultural narrative and make you question the relevance or truth of those potential narratives then, as if Sephiroth is sort of a nihilistic force or the nihilistic force that could have come post-World War II in the wake of, say, a major sort of military defeat where, um, where all of a sudden one questions whether how one what has one pursued um, since 
uh, since the narrative one used in order to pursue the ultimate good has failed and ended up in a major cultural military loss, um, is this a representation of sort of the spiritual fourth force that eats at a person that makes them sort of question the fabric of their being um, uh, and question the very foundation of their sort of cultural narrative um, and, and even sort of suggest that, um, you know, with the destruction of Ares, actually an, a new hope, a new, a new sort of narrative is going to have to be born. Um, and I would suggest that this, this opinion or this, uh, this perspective is bolstered by the fact that this is an underworld, right? You come through the bone village in a forest, a dark forest. That's where uh, Dante goes into uh, the underworld. And the bone village, somewhere that's dead, the city of the ancients, is called both the forgotten capital and then the forgotten city. Somewhere forgotten uh, where all that which has been is which is dead and gone is stored sort of the knowledge of those from before um <clears throat> that's uh the same underworld odysseus goes into aeneas goes into and that is later sort of um figured uh in christian way by dante but so this is a place where you even take a light bridge down so to call it a place of dream or underworld or a place that is sort of beyond the realm of the normal that invites metaphorical um, understanding, I think is, I think that's very strong. That, that, that something explicitly dramatic is going to happen when you come down those very unreal sort of light stairs. Uh, like you're saying, the stage is, is quite literally set with a uh, light shining down through a water-like medium indicating that perceptions are blurred. Um, and you are actually beneath the water that you will later bury her in, which is another, is an interesting way to bury someone too, right? It's not uh, burning her, it's her, you know, like putting her on a fire in like a Star Wars or sort of a Kian uh, Greek way or, you know, even contemporary American way, but it's uh, dropping her into the water, which, you know, which is not, you know, that's a sailor's death, I suppose. I, I, I'd actually be interested why, why you think that's, that's the way that it's done. I wish I had looked that up before this, because as you're saying that, I realized there could be many cultures that actually practice such a burial, but I've never heard of it outside of, as you say, someone dying on board a ship. And then that is the traditional um, way to lay them to rest. Yeah. Um, and, and that in itself is quite interesting. If you, you know, think about Eris as being a kind of passenger, um, she's, you, you're on this journey, right? And she's dying before the journey's over. Um, and so you you release her into that medium um, in which she she died. Um, that does seem it seems very interesting too that that she sinks right away. Like yeah. I I I always kind of was weirded out by that. It's it's as if she's being pulled down more than that she's just sort of floating down. And so to me that always again really closely connects her with the the materia that falls in that moment, um, which she's had all along, right? And, and, and it's just, it hasn't been something that could have been used or would have been suitable to, to use at any point, but which now, as she dies, uh, is, is, becomes out of reach, you know? Her death, this is another thing, like just to look at it technically within the, the rules of the game, 
her death should not be final, right? There, there's no such thing as that. It, you, you, you die in battle, you get revived. It's not a, it's not a thing. But, but in terms of the story, it's essential that she actually dies. You know, um, you, you see this, at, as you say, the, the descent to the underworld is something that you have to go through <laughs> uh, one way or another, it seems. Um, and what that means mythologically, right, does seem to, to include among, among its most obvious meanings, a, an encounter with death, right? A, an actual, um, you know, reckoning with the mortality that is the human's lot, right? And so that, that involves um, the attempt to, to descend, right? Makes a lot of sense. Um, the way that the hero comes back out of that, right, is sort of, in many ways, what makes them heroic, what makes them unlike the, the, the common person or the, un, the incomplete person, right, is that they, they return from that. They return from death, from the land of death or, or how, the underworld, however you want to say it, right? And, and this is a classic thing, like going back to, to video game rules, well, yeah, like you have lots of lives. That's how you get better at the game. You die over and over, and pretty soon you learn how to play the game, and then you, you don't die quite as much. But you still die a lot, and that's okay. And that's how it works in, in imagination, right? You can, you can imagine playing through stories, and you might die in the story, or you might die in the drama, the play. But that's, that's all right. That's, that's almost like the whole point <laughs> of being able to represent um, is as a way to kind of reckon with that. And, and anyway, so just to, to go back to the, the, the water imagery, it's also super interesting that in this boss battle that happens, all of the attacks seem to be water type attacks, right? It's like the evil version of this, this medium is, uh, is trying to bring you down. But, but you have an item that if you, if you searched around it, even a slight bit, you've, you found the item that will make it impossible for you to lose this battle, right? Because it will always just heal you with its water attack. So it really emphasizes like the dual aspect of, of death, of violence in terms of story and how that works. And, and what you're saying about Sephiroth representing the, the, the cutting aspect of intellect, um, sort of self-cutting um, aspect of it is, is super interesting. I think that descent in free societies, that's part of what makes it so important, right? To, yeah, to cut away ideals that no longer are serving and to um, allow the new ones to be born. Um, that, that's a real interesting image. And it makes me think a lot about um, modern and contemporary kind of culture uh, dissents and discussions and things. Right. And like, again, illustrating the point about him is he can do something that nobody else in the game can do, including you. He can permanently remove somebody in a way that you cannot fix. He has a, he has a superpower even over you, the player. Um, he, he can take away anything you love too, by extension, um, because you can't even keep yourself together. But uh, I also wanted to mention along that lines, uh, what Sephiroth does to you, which is also sort of an underworld thing, because when Achilles, um from the Iliad becomes enraged, he is called uh, pitiless like the death god, because only the death god is pitiless because he takes all people. And so in some way to be gripped by an emotion is to be possessed by a god, is to be sort of like a, a harbinger of death or 
to be in the underworld and have your your um, sort of decisions determined for you in the first place. Um, and so, sorry, I'm trying to trying to make bridge that connection now. Just having having uh, steeped into the Iliad so far and talked about Achilles, and this is a connection I did want to make. Um, but um, oh yes. Well, so what you feel when Sephiroth does this, the first thing I felt when I first watched this ever and when I watched it now was unforgivable. That word just, just jumped into my, my, my head. It's like, finally, he's done it. Everything he's done, destroying home, destroying mom, you know. Uh, duh, but now, killing Ares too, that just is too close to home. It's too much. Unforgivable. And it, what sort of took over me as a player, which I imagine it's, you're supposed to think took over Cloud too, is like this iron resolve to kill Sephiroth, to destroy him, finally get to get vengeance. And that that is itself a descent to the underworld and becoming determined and giving up the good of the logos or the intellect. And that that is what, need, that is what Cloud is going to have to overcome, to overcome that sort of hate, to let a new ideal be born or something that will be powerful enough or holy enough to fight against um the 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 ultimate destructive materia uh the the blight from the skies um meteor uh which hasn't been summoned yet but we're i'm imagining it will happen soon right right like sephiroth's removing that one obstacle right Ares has the one thing that can save the planet he he cuts her down, um, and her she's she seems to accept it right. Like she doesn't raise a hand. She doesn't have the chance. Um, it's it's like you can't believe that for me. It's like unbelievable. I can't believe right. Uh, this is happening. Um, this is this can't happen. <laughs> right? Surely there's some mistake here. And and that that feeling that like the bottom just falls out. Um, it, it's it's it lets you know that there is something deeper though right you have to go through that feeling and i think yeah forgiveness is a really good way to to come to understand that eventually but for forgiveness to mean anything it, it has to be a real struggle right and, and i think that faith is, is much the same way right to to believe that there is like good that's going to come out of this evil thing that that should be extremely difficult if it's if it's authentically um like felt you know and and it really determines your uh your actions in the world you know and your choices that you make that well, it's the ultimate moral effort right because cloud is going to if he actually wants to get this vengeance which he now has the old ultimate motivation to get because not only is sephiroth trying to destroy the world it is both his fault and sephiroth has taken the most important person in the world away from him and so he is the most motivated person on the planet to destroy Sephiroth. And as Sephiroth is the most powerful creature ever to have existed, Cloud is going to have to become even stronger than that. And so uh, I, think, I think at the very least, it's going to be an interesting narrative on, on what produces maximal adaptation to a situation. And it seems to be super motivation to achieve a goal results in maximum uh, adaptation over the shortest amount of time like the greatest increase in strength over time in order to uh achieve a goal uh and, and so um i don't know I, I i think that's 
sort of very interesting too. It's like if you set the bar high enough and you have a real reason to get over that bar, you will, you will, you probably, you know, you'll find a way, or at least you'll be, you know, die trying, I guess is the idea too. It, it's interesting. Yeah. So thinking about it, like the way Nietzsche says it, right, is that Christianity has been this incredible tension in the bow. And so I'm thinking about like what Eris does is set the bar, right, by dying. I mean, you could say that Sephiroth does it. And I think that, you know, that is the simpler way to read the scene, right? Sephiroth takes away this thing. But I keep going back to like, Eris allows it to happen. Right. Like whatever force of life is there allows this to happen. It sets that bar. It's the sacrifice, the sacrificial element that's so, so key there that I think, you know, that's sort of the counterpart to what you're saying about gaining strength as a result of that challenge, that, that gauntlet being thrown down, right? So, so in the one hand, yeah, you, you die trying, right? And that is what releases the, the energy for further trying and further striving. And so it's this kind of this um, cycle uh, of, of effort. No, and you're of, right, because right, that's, that's what Obi-Wan seems to have realized at the beginning of Star Wars A New Hope, that if he allowed a good person to witness an injustice done, that that would give the ultimate resolve. That would break the fairness circuit, right? Which we know is a fundamental motivation for humans, that when you see someone act unfairly, you want to punish the person who was unfair. And so that's what Obi-Wan realizes, that it will give Luke the ultimate resolve to defeat Darth Vader if he sees his master unjustly struck down in a defenseless way. And that seems to be also what's realized by, by Ares, that if she allows Sephiroth, who could kill her anyway, to do it willingly in this sort of, sort of Christian voluntary sacrificial way, but so now she's both like Christ and like Mary, right? Because she's a, a feminine figure, but she who gives life and tends to the garden, sort of an Eve-like way too, but also, um, but also um, uh, sacrifices herself for something greater than herself. Now she will give the motivation to Cloud uh, necessary to possibly become strong enough to deal with Sephiroth himself. Um, and so it's also like a story of Bildungsroman, right? That in sacrificing the ideal, uh, she... He will, she will make the actual being strong enough to, by striving for an even higher ideal to, um, to, to deal with a real-world uh, destructive conflict or, or for a real-world destructive force that rears its head over and over again and is possibly psychological in nature but has real-world consequences, Sephiroth, um, who we're not sure because of his translucency to what extent he is he is real autonomously uh or or relative to cloud because he does kind of talk inside your head and then appear out of nowhere often where you are in moments of importance and so what he is and in what manner he exists is very odd and the fact that you keep fighting genova too i find quite odd but i would like to say that that is the big I do think that is why this is such a pivotal scene that what is done is so unfair it's sort of like adolescent scene like a crucifixion scene i would say it's tantamount to that it's the same sort of circuitry anyway it's the same sort of story and that it is supposed to evoke uh some of the most powerful emotions of vengeance in you and that it does succeed in doing that at least for me yeah just to throw another i mean i think you've made this connection but to look at it another way 
the opening of the Iliad, right, has to do with Achilles having a, a woman taken away from him. Yes. Right. And that's that's sort of the driving thing behind his his rage or, or, or an aspect of it, a way to think about it is is just that. So, yeah, I think, you know, this this seems to be really in line with those kinds of mythic um, uh, descriptions, narratives that that help us understand or at least like see a kind of journey that we need to 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 go through. Um, and, and sort of accept uh, in order to, well, you know, to save the world, right? <laughs> so that seems to be, uh, and I'm thinking now of the way this game actually ends, which, which really throws a, an interesting spin on things, but I think we can t deal with that when we come to it. Um, but, but for now, I will say that one, in, one other really interesting thing about this moment is the, um, the materia that you find there in the Forbidden City, the comet materia, yeah, um, it's like it's like a miniature version of, yes. of the meteor materia, right? Sorry, were you saying something? No, I was just agreeing. I was saying yes, it is just so funny that you put it that way because that's exactly how I say it to a miniature version of meteor. Yeah, go on, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, I that's that was just like a way to again, sort of just like poke at the player and be like now now look at yourself right you've you're like a miniature sephiroth <laughs> you've got your you've got your comet materia um aren't you so proud and and you've got your you know your fancy you're getting some pretty fancy armor at this point you've got your water ring you've got your dragon armlet you're pretty cool you've got your aurora uh bangle or whatever it's called so you know your party is probably pretty strong at this point relative to a lot of the things you're fighting um, especially if you've done some of the side quests and, and stuff like that, right? Um, but again, it's like now all the more you feel that this this great injustice is happening that this this um, that Eris has taken away at this moment. Um, and particularly, right, if you if you have invested some time maybe in like making her an important part of your your party, um, if you're playing this game, you know, blind, which is practically impossible to to conceive of at this point <laughs> but but maybe you could you know or, or or you did at some point um play it thinking that you'd have Eris the whole time of course right naturally and she's a great character and maybe you you know you you might have even had a lot of important stuff equipped on her when she left your party and uh and that stuff is gone now <laughs> so well, it's down know, at it's the bottom of the uh, lake it's interesting too because um uh, what you say there is she's the archetypal healer right even her first most of her limit breaks center around healing. And so, again, even the fact that she dies is indicating that something is dying here, some archetypal role, something is being expanded. And I would be that, that our mentality has to be expanded about what a fantasy game is. And they really did do quite a bit in this game to expand, you know, our ideas of fantasy. Like, it's a very sci-fi sort of game. But also... Um, also, so Aries dying. Oh, there was another. There was another point that was a part of that that I really wanted to hit on that I thought was interesting. Um, let me see. Sorry, sorry about that. Um, but yeah, no. So she's going to be upsetting normal roles. Sephiroth is going to be able to kill them in that way. No, that's all I've got for the moment. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's cool. I mean, 
I, I really appreciate just like thinking through this stuff because I always, yeah, have lots more ideas as we talk than, you know, it's very easy to just be drawn into the story and play through and that's fine. And that's, you know, on, on, in one sense, like the right way to play the game, I think. But I, I do really like that we can kind of find um, not too deeply buried there, like a whole lot of, of really interesting stuff. The, the, the sci-fi-ness is driven home a lot by the CGI itself, right? Like that's a new um, element of the technology that's being deployed here. And you notice the times when it's used, they all seem to really center around like critical, um, critical points of uh, contention, right? It's not really used for like beautiful uh, sort of peaceful moments. It's like when you're on the motorbike and it's when um, Sephiroth is burning down your hometown. Uh, and here, of course, the, the most famous, I think maybe the most famous image in any video game. I don't know. Maybe that's a hyperbolic statement, but it's not that it's hyperbolic up there, right? it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah so, so the CGI, that, that whole like element of it, um, to me, it helps in some sense pull you into the story. But on the other hand, by comparison with the CGI graphics, the rest of the game, especially in hindsight of, of you know, a couple decades here, it doesn't look that great, you know? And so you really have to invest a lot as a player imaginatively to, um, to the world. Um, which is something that I, I really actually like about it, right? You, you do, even if you're not thinking hard about the game, your, your mind is doing quite a bit um, to make it a kind of real experience for you. Uh, yeah. The, yeah. The, game, the game's weakness is part of its strength, which I think is kind of the theme here. Well, two things there. I, I think part of what Sephiroth here represents, this is what I missed last time, was um, <clears throat> might be the meeting of parochial culture with larger national and multinational culture, that that which has been important to you. Now you see how small it is in comparison to these sort of super entities. And so it's just as the game sort of pokes at your character and how weak it is compared to Sephiroth, this might be like sort of the weakness of your sort of like small parochial narrative in the wake of sort of national multinational ones that are even represented in like large form in like sort of like through Star Wars, right? Which has a galactic alliance, which is the biggest possible community of sentient beings. Um, uh, and so that, that, that was something I wanted to mention about the game sort of poking, the poke, poking at you. And then directly to your last point, what was the last bit that you just said, just so I can remember what it was I had to say? I just like store these things in the cloud. <laughs> just about the the weakness of some of the graphics oh, with respect perfect, to perfect. so i think that sort of illustrates so this guy peterson we talk about often cites these neuroscientists and one that he talks about says that you um you don't see a cliff edge you don't see like a definite thing that you then see the the definition of you see you see it as a place for action you see it as a falling off place you see it for what the implications for your behavior are. And so I think that a game really illustrates the truth of this because you get the meaning of what's happening regardless of how it's portrayed in front of you, just like sort of like how cartoons work. It can be South Park with terrible graphics or some uh, beautiful Hayao Miyazaki with wonderful ones, but you're still going to like laugh and cry, right, as you watch it. Because 
what you're actually seeing is the meaning or the drama or the tension of the situation, not the actual images themselves, which is almost like why when somebody walks in and they're like, those graphics suck, you just get defensive and angry and are like, whatever, they're good enough for me. And I think that that's actually what a lot of the arguments we had when we were young were about, right? Like who had better graphics, N64 or Sony or PlayStation, even though it was like objectively true that the N64 did, but you would still argue about that because you were like, this one tells the better stories, I like it more, I don't care about the objective facts. And I think, I think that's what you're sort of pointing to here. Yeah, oh, that's funny. Thinking about the, the kind of defensive nature of um, fandom, uh, that, that's very interesting, because I think in many ways it deeply misunderstands the thing it's trying to defend, right? Right. It's kind of the, the out, outcome of that line of thinking um but on the other hand the the uh the the heart is in the right place right you want other people to like the stuff that you like you want them to give it a fair chance um and maybe you're kind of blind to the fact that you aren't really being objective about it anymore yourself right so yeah i i again I, i really like how how seminal this moment is um in in people's game playing experience and in sort of the culture of gaming. Um, I think I don't know enough about what has already been said about it. I don't really particularly um, care to do the research either. Um, but I do really like that this, uh, this moment in some ways um, like polarizes people on, on this game, um, either because they really, you know, love the game or they really despise people who love the game. <laughs> there's all these different ways in which this happens. Um, and there's, I mean, I think what we're, what we're attempting to do here is to look at it, not exactly objectively, of course, um, as you say, but to look at it uh, as a story, right? And, and what kind of story is being told and how does it relate to other stories which may have influenced it or may, you know, in what ways does it relate to the underlying um, mythological structures that seem to influence pretty much every story, right? And so the other aspect of it, though, of, of culture, um, in terms of, of Japanese culture, in terms of, um, you know, historical uh, events, but also in terms of more modern and postmodern culture uh, of the kind of discussions around this game, uh, for people who are, are interested in that stuff, again, this, this is kind of the most the most crucial point to, to look at probably. Um, I bet there's like sociological studies and, and psychological studies out there about this stuff. Now, it, it, the, uh, the next conversation we're gonna do is gonna kind of just dip a toe into that stuff, right? Um, around the idea of addiction. Uh, that is one that I'm, I'm, pre- I'm looking forward to. Um, that's in, in, in just the next couple of days here, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. So in the next couple of days, we are going to do that. We're going to have Dr. Matt Bruce on, and we're really looking forward to that. He's been uh, collaborating on consilience conversations, and he is a professional neuroscientist. So we're going to talk a little bit about what's happening when somebody gets addicted and how one can become addicted to sort of an activity and how one is actually doing real activities and hardwiring oneself for those activities when one is playing video games and just... Um, how sort of a narrative can produce uh, seeking behavior in someone which is, uh, you know, highly, mitig- which is 
um, sort of uh, that uses this neurotransmitter called dopamine, which gives one, uh, uh, which is the best reward one can receive to pursue a certain end. And so that builds habit fastest. And so it's going to be, well, we're going to talk about just how nasty addiction is and just how nasty addiction can be to a video game and just how much nastier it is if you want to get to that next point in the narrative. So you're pretty motivated to get there because it's a, I think it's something that catches a lot of people and that they might be ashamed to, to admit, but that actually they shouldn't be ashamed because a video game is like a super narrative, right? Not only is it the most gripping possible archetypes, where you even use more of your brain to interact with it, uh, your two hands, which if you ever look at a motor homunculus, most of what, most of your, uh, what your motor strip in your brain represents you as is like a face and like two hands. And so you're actually using far more of your brain in order to be a part of this experience, which means that the habits you're building um, are even more in you for uh, when you become addicted to a video game than for, you know, something simple like re like even simpler than like reading or just listening to something. So, yeah, I, it's going to be very, like all of our conversations, I think it will be very, very interesting. Um, I, I got to say, after playing this part of the game, I did continue playing quite a bit more than I intended to. Like, I, I went on and uh, climbed the weird like ice cave thing. And, and so I saved the game out, outside up in the uh, snow fields. And I had I'd intended to just save it after you know the story stuff um, got through because I knew that's all we'd really have time to talk about today. <laughs> but I kept playing anyway. And as you say that, I think, yeah, I think I have to admit that I'm, the, so, the evidence would suggest that I am slightly addicted to this game now. Well, I mean, and that is the uh, risk, you know, we take as sailors, right? As sort of like, you know, like what a therapist would do with a client. And our client happens to be this highly addictive game, right? So it's like, a, it's like something that can be a normal personality or a neurosis and infect us to some extent as we're dealing with it and draw us in, but we have to navigate it sort of like through the Scylla and the Charybdis. But I, I just wanted to mention... The fact that you first start in a cold, cold-ass place um, going up a mountain is very purgatorial right after this, as if it is a place of limbo, a place of, uh, a place of cold without the heat of um, the ideal behind you. It, it, it is itself also like a dead, barren, desert place that after something dies, you find yourself in a terrible place where distinctions disappear like the uh jews from egypt in in exodus into the desert or like now you you go out into the cold you are beyond your old belief structure and so you're going to have to rebuild it yourself you are like the grinch ron howard's grinch running out from whoville and now onto this mountain which is uh which is cold you're going to have to like zarathustra and this is what I think Nietzsche gets wrong, not build your own values, but find the new superordinate value and thus build your sort of moral structures that enable you to get to or strive towards that value. But you're not there yet. You're out in the cold. Basically. Mm -hmm. it, it's like a second expulsion. The first one was getting out of Midgar. 
and get into that world map. And now you're now you're on this freezing place. And if I recall correctly, do you have to actually shiver in, to keep yourself warm? It's like that cold, right? Yeah, I, that part hasn't happened just yet. But yeah, that is uh, that is about to happen at some point here. Uh, so, yeah. The the um the way in which the uh the ideal is laid to rest uh and the player continues on is also really strongly like this moment is marked out in terms of the game's technology as well right you you have to take out disc one and put in disc two and there's this uh this this moment during which you're playing the game but there is no game in the device it, it's a very interesting and i think maybe uh, another sort of new thing um, that happened with this game. I, I don't know, there may have been other games before this that had multiple discs and whatnot, but, um, but it's, quite a, it's quite a scary experience, huh? Yeah, well, you have to take a breath and then move forward. That's one thing. And you are showing and voluntarily choosing to move forward and accept the conditions that the game has placed on you, right? Just like Cloud has to accept conditions that life has placed on him now that you're moving forward. But yeah, I think you're directly referencing the fact that I, I now have a PS3, and so I play this as a, an in, like as in downloaded game I bought from Sony directly, and so, or from Squaresoft through the PS3 store, the Sony store. And so when the game asked me to move on to the next disc, I thought I might be stuck, just like I thought I might have been stuck when I was going against that last big boss that could deal so much damage. I forget which one it was. Oh yeah, I was in, it, it was on the Nibelheim mountain, right? The, the one right before the wall, that, that dragon that was so tough. Yeah, and so I, I experienced another one of those dysregulating sort of Pandora's box opening and snakes uh, jumping out in my life becoming more complex because I was like, oh no, what's gonna happen if, if this is a flaw in the game and the emulator and I, I can't move forward, but luckily there was, a, there was a fact about that where I just had to press the home screen and then I could change to the next disc. But I do agree that that is a very interesting moment in the game, the taking a breath and that itself being a part of the experience. And also it's sort of like you having to uh, have faith in the game that it will work, that if you perform this operation where you shoot the disc out, it won't just restart on you. But it does also not test your faith too much because it lets you save before that moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it it sort of eases you into it, um, and it's not the last time you'll have to do this, right? This is a three disc game, but we're on to disc two. We uh, we've got our first um, new guest coming up here to uh, help lead us into this new new chapter of the game, um, and it's well. I mean, I guess pretty, a pretty good, uh, like 17 episodes, is it, of, of disc one? So we're looking at like, you know, 40 or 50 episodes total for this series. I think that's, that's pretty rad. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about this because I, I used to consider, and it's interesting to what extent pursuing ideals helps you to shape higher ideals than the ones you first conceived. But I used to consider this like magnum open, magnum opus level stuff, like, that I thought at some point in my career, I might be able to try and go through this. And I never even gave thought the, to the fact that I might be able to do it with a scholar like you. And now, I mean, we're much closer than a third of the way through this because disc three, from what I recall, 
is not that actually that long. You can do a bunch of fun side quests and often you can spend a lot of time like with the chocobos and stuff, but it's sort of light on the story. Like I think it's only five or 10 hours of gameplay in the story. So we're actually a lot closer to halfway through the game nice. than I think and thus halfway through a project that I thought was going to come a lot later in my career and in our careers. And you know, this is just groundwork stuff at this point, which I, which is interesting. So we're like that character cloud, right? Like obviously there's still people like Shapiro and Ruben and, and Peterson and all those IDW guys who we hope someday to be speaking to and on terms with, and, you know, not just have them be like sort of figures above us, but be colleagues. But we're, we're those are like the Sephiroths and we're like, you know, the cloud, we're, we're a lot farther along, <laughs> much bigger listenership than we did. And we're accomplishing things much bigger than I think we ever hoped um, already. And, and I think, you know, we're, we're far more understanding of what it is we're doing and what it is we're pursuing. But, you know, we, we, we ultimately see that there's just so much room for growth too. So just like my characters are level 35 and I know they can be level hundred. I feel like that's sort of like us as well. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, to, to try to aspire to talk to some public intellectuals and people who are really driving very interesting, uh, controversial movements and things, uh, with this new technology, you know, you know, much like the game, there's, there's a kind of risk on the one hand, right? Maybe you're wasting your time. Who knows what on the other hand? Yeah. Like each time we do one of these, we get to save the game, you know, it's there. Um, if this all explodes tomorrow, well, you know, the, 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 we made we made this portion of it, and that's out there somewhere. And uh, like like Faulkner says in his Nobel Prize speech, right? Somewhere down at the end of time, it'll just be a human voice talking, talking, right? Uh, something like that. So I think about that sometimes. You know, it's an interesting way to bequeath something to posterity here, and it is. It's it's been very enlightening uh, and very fun to do so. Looking forward to continuing on. Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting to what extent articulating your past frees yourself from it. And so, you know, we've been doing things along sort of a Freudian level, too. And, uh, you know, uh, it's interesting. I, I wonder to what extent at some point we might offer this as sort of a, a therapeutic service as well as just a leisurely service. Because, I mean, I think talking is always helpful when it is genuinely done about something which somebody cares about, often something personal to somebody. And it's interesting because I think one of the hangups about us ever talking about this game is that I, I used to think that it was too personal for me. And yet that's the opposite of how it should work, right? The more personal something is, the more you should talk about it in, in terms of articulating it in order to understand what its definite effect on you is in order to release you from touchiness about that effect, but to understand the reality of the effect so you don't feel like you have to defend it, right? Because that's the problem when something touches somebody and they don't know how to articulate why. Somebody else will ask you why, you won't have a good answer, and then they'll dismiss it as if it doesn't exist. And since it's your experience, it's the most important thing to you in the world, you don't want to be gaslit, and so you'll get upset. And so I, I think these stories that are so close to us that we learned about at such formative parts of our lives, articulating what it is that they mean to us so much later in life doesn't take away from our initial experiences, but it helps us to connect to other people and helps us to understand what sort of beings we actually are. 
Um, oh, nice. Well said. Yeah. Yeah. Well, bang. I hope everybody listened in till the end today because you never know when the gold's going to come out, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, usually at the end of the battle, there will be a certain amount of gill. Uh, yeah, and then yeah, you can yeah. use that to go buy an HP plus materia and an MP plus materia because those are pretty useful. And uh, oh yeah, so anyway, <laughs> thanks again. Uh, yeah, till uh, Tuesday, right? Yeah, Tuesday, Tuesday. And all so right. for those of you uh, all listening, we've got another Harry Potter coming out with the wonderful Sarah Miller tomorrow. We've got this next side quest coming out on Tuesday. Uh, we'll we'll set this down, but probably we're gonna have a night school. I would imagine on Wednesday um west yep, uh, yeah sounds good and um then um then thursday friday saturday we'll well you know we'll let you know as the week goes on and uh our recurrent events either this week or next week as well so you know we're we're hitting our stride and we're gonna we're gonna take as many laps as we can right on all right well thanks again thank Have you a good one you too